Hello, this is Art Fictions. I'm artist and writer Gillian Knight, wishing a big warm welcome to listeners and to my guest artist today, Fiona Grady. Fiona and I talk about In Praise of Shadows, written by the accomplished Japanese novelist Junichiro Tanizaki in 1933. While the author himself shunned the fast-paced, sharp and shiny modernism of Tokyo, he wrote of Japan's love of shadows as a poignant symbol of traditional aesthetics having been overrun by the West. Shadows which are held in recesses quiet the room, creating a space for contemplation. They command us to squint our eyes and look carefully beyond the full exposure of daylight. In a similar way to Tanizaki's appreciation of nuance, Fiona Grady's art practice plays on the presence of shadow, reflection, colour and light. While she's created wall murals and works on paper, she's perhaps best known for her multicoloured geometric window installations. Often in public places, they interrupt the predictable horizontals and verticals of buildings and are activated in the sunlight as it ages the day, shining intangible shapes into the interior space. Much like the subtlety of Japan's wooden fixtures, paper doors and gold-laced pottery, they have the power to change mood, to shift the volume dial and interrupt the grain of surfaces they illuminate, all with an assertive presence that has a lack of demand. Then, as evening moves in, they retract into a gentle nighttime dormancy. Let's be very official, at least in the beginning, and say, Fiona Grady, welcome to Art Fictions. Hi, thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure, and it was an absolute pleasure to read this book on two levels. One, because the content is just beautiful, uh, and also because it's so short. (laughs) (laughs) I really did appreciate that. But dense, you know, dense in its its content. And uh, anyway, so we are talking about In Praise of Shadows, so I'm first going to... Summarize the book, which was written by, and I'm going to get all these pronunciations wrong. So it was written by Junichiro Tanizaki and first published in Japan in 1933. So we're reading a translation, obviously. Uh, it's not technically a piece of fiction, but it does have a peculiar waxing lyrical approach. So Fiona and I formed an official committee and voted unanimously to let it pass. <laughs> yeah, it's worth noting as well that he's a novelist as well. So I think that helps really in the, the sense of the prose, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He moved to the Kyoto, Osaka region following the 1923 Tokyo earthquake and once there he gave up what he considered to be his superficial westernization and he became absorbed in the Japanese past and so it goes that that's where he wrote his most popular books. Uh, So this shift in his outlook inevitably merged with his inner life and In Praise of Shadows is something of a meditative reflection of Japanese aesthetic in comparison to western influence. Though I did very much get the sense When he says Western, he's referring to America because there's all sorts of subtleties, I think, in Western cultural aesthetic in Europe that are probably more aligned with Japan than America. But anyway, and uh, the book pivots, of course, around shadows. It's a story of their place in the domestic settings of traditional Japan, where shadows are purposely placed to accentuate light and materials. And I think it's fair to say it's almost equally a story of the intolerance of shadows in Western culture. Consider this is where the invention of the light bulb 
help is credited to the American Thomas Edison. So, Fiona Grady, I thought we could flesh out some of Tanizaki's ideas in our conversation, but first perhaps you can tell me why you chose the book. Yes, so the book is something that I first was captured really just by the title of the book. A lot of my work, I look at natural light, particularly daylight, and how the affectations of daylight can change the way that you read a space. And as you say, it's a really great example of talking about aesthetics, but not just in terms of sort of big, brash, you know, kind of maybe the Western sense, as, as you say, but really thinking about the details in the unobserved moments, like qualities of material and light and a sense of place and feeling I think that although it's a short book it packs a lot of ideas in and I find it very inspiring yes definitely very inspiring so when did you read the book first of all I first came across it about 10 years ago um, in relation to a gallery that I was working for where Edmund Duval had referenced it. And it's something that I've come back to again and again. And I had a two-person show at White Conduit Projects, I think maybe 2016, with artist mm-hmm. Yukako Shibata. And we used the title Light in Plenty, Shadow in Plenty. But that was sort of harking back a bit. But it kind of had quite effect on the way I thought about things. And around that time, I also went to Japan for two weeks with my sister and so it just was sort of really resonated with me that experience and reading the book at the same time and then thinking about my own practice too. Wow so what captured you about your trip there and then how I suppose this is two different questions but they do overlap and then how did you see things through the framework of that book? Well my interest in Japan sort of stemmed from many different things both in an interest in calligraphy, handmade papers and all that kind of sensibility of really um, being very sort of simplistic but at the same time focusing on things that are quite sort of beautiful and meditative and again I also really love Japanese food so kind of for me it was such a sort of (laughs) sensory experience I mean um, we started in Tokyo and we worked our way down the country and we sort of went from recommendations for friends so we went to the Art Island Naoshima and we also went to Hiroshima and to Kyoto and Nara and visited loads of shrines and it was lovely as well because you know each region they have their own sort of delicacies so we had you know we stayed in a ryokan which is the sort of traditional hotel where we had um sort of they had hot springs spa and we stepped on tatami mats and our room sort of looked onto a stream so it was kind of you know really about sort of taking in the environment and the noises and just being somewhere quite peaceful and we had a special sort of five course dinner where they brought out the local speciality tofu and things like that so it was just a really amazing experience In this book, and also for what we see in popular media and Mm. film, there's this sort of romantic beauty about Japan. Is that real? Was that your experience? Yeah, Japan's a really interesting country in the sense that it's very modern, but also very traditional at the same time. Mm -hmm. And although it's been one of the forerunners in terms of technology, things kind of also felt quite old in the sense that everything's preserved and looked after. So, you know, kind of when you're going through the railway stations and in like more contemporary hotels, things kind of don't necessarily look new and shiny, but at the same time, everything functions extremely well. And I think kind of in the book, they sort of talking about like the qualities of wood and light and resisting kind of electricity and favouring candlelight because it looks and feels better. Um, there's all these kind of subtle things that you don't necessarily see, but you can feel and appreciate, and it's very atmospheric in that sense. Yeah, I suppose the contrast is the idea that the Western version of light is to illuminate everything, 
mm. and by illuminating everything, then the surrounds of what you illuminate become black. There's no subtlety in them. Also, through illuminating everything, it mars, really, your ability to see because there's no subtlety. And I did have to restrict my reading, though, to a sense of the inside or the domestic space because once you get into the illumination and darkness, perhaps not in Japan or perhaps it's a gendered thing, but, of course, we want lights on our streets so that we're safe walking home, etc. So once you go into that realm, which he allows himself he goes into all sorts of different realms including theater and even the skin of japanese women versus western women it started to get a bit romantic land yeah. Yeah. i don't know what do you think the essay was written 90 years ago and there's certain things that don't age very well and you can kind of feel that in the writing and sort of talking about the nuances of theatre and the lighting ruining performances and you know as much as I'm a purist in the sense that I love using daylight to illuminate my work I'm also aware of particularly in the UK that in winter we have you know shorter hours of daylight and to activate things you do need to have some form of lighting but at the same time there is a poeticness in you know kind of just focusing on an alcove and kind of moving around the house and I know um, from some traditional houses that we visited when we were in Japan, the, sort of the bigger ones have, you know, a central garden and you kind of can be quite sort of circular in terms of the way that the houses are. So, yeah, we went to this amazing oh, God, house by that. this um, sculptor. <laughs> yeah, I can't um, think of his name off the top of my head. I'll, I'll have to tell you mm. uh, for reference. But he, he had this um, kind of, you know, pond and some sort of ornamental trees in the centre. You know, kind of he had this huge studio purpose-built for his sculptures to be moved in and out. And it's sort of interesting with interior design because, you know, one of the things that he referenced was that we kind of want everything to be white and bright, whereas the dark wood kind of allows you to pick up different qualities of the objects within the room. And it's also this sense of minimalism of, you know, tidying away the wires and resisting certain forms of technology. And I love minimalism, but I also love maximalism at the same time. I collect a lot of things. <laughs> it almost ends up becoming an either or, doesn't it? But there is a sense of the Western lighting as a bit of a sort of rabbit in the headlights, which I thought was really interesting in contrast to a more subtle shadowy light or shadowy dark, you know, that in-between space, which is neither one or the other. And the sense that Tanizaki talks about where he sort of equates daylight with reality, whereas in the shadows and in the darkness our imagination starts working because we see things partially. So we either complete them or imagine other things such as ghosts or spirits. So you're kind of bridging that real world and the world of the imagination. Did you get a sense of that or...? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, there's some quotable comments in it. He refers to the mystery of the shadows and also, again, of the secrets of the shadows. Oh, yeah. Tell me, do you want to read those out? Yeah, I've got um, one bit that I'd highlighted, which is... Yeah, so here we go. So, whenever I see the alcove of a tastefully built Japanese room, I marvel at our comprehension of the secrets of shadows, our sensitive use of shadow and lights. For the beauty of the alcove, it's not the work of some clever device. And then he kind of goes on to refer to the dim shadows within the emptiness that are nothing more and how we gaze into the darkness. But he says again, the mere shadow where we overcome feeling. And I just think there's all these like little kind of 
comments that you can pick away at. I just kind of highlighted a few of them as I was going through. But mm. again, he refers to the heavy shadows against the light of shadows. And it's this thing of kind of pulling out the positive and negative space and kind of what happens in those in-between moments. Yeah. So what was your outtake from those parts that you were reading? Maybe a sense of kind of like coming down to the void and our differences on kind of what happens afterwards. And I think kind of both in Eastern and Western philosophy and culture that there's kind of like a different feelings about the unknown. And I think that in his work, he really celebrates this idea of kind of the things that we don't know and the mysticism of it, too. The reflections of, I mean, pardon my pun, the reflections of the alcove, for instance, they, they're actually quite dominant in religious paintings as well in the West. But I don't have a real memory of them being particularly shadowed, but I do have a sense of them enclosing something very precious or the thing that is to be looked at. That also made me think of, I do have a little book, which is Wabi Sabi for Artists, Designers, Poets and Philosophers by Leonard Corrin. It talks about Wabi Sabi, which is derived from Buddhist teaching, that beauty is imperfect, impermanent and incomplete. So that sort of connects with what you're saying about a culture that is not interested in perfection, that is not interested in idealism, which which runs through the book. I mean, I definitely connected to that. Yeah, I think there's also this thing of instant gratification through art and, you know, kind of when you're making art, you're often asked to explain why you've done it or what you want people to see or feel or think. And for me... I really like art where it creates environments or an ambience that is less obvious in a sense. And really, it's, again, this thing of kind of having somewhere where people can, you know, maybe sit and contemplate or that it grows on you and it doesn't necessarily shout out at you. And I think, again, that's probably a lot of what this book is sort of nodding to you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Although... (laughs) One of the places of contemplation is the toilet. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He goes on and on about the toilet and the aesthetics of the toilet. Uh, He does say, although he does say in all seriousness, in contemplating the toilet as a place for privacy and uh, meditative thinking, were I able to have things my own way, I would much prefer fixtures, both men's and women's, made of wood. Wood finished in glistening black lacquer is the very best, but even unfinished wood, as it darkens and the grain grows more subtle with the years, acquires an inexplicable power to calm and soothe. And I think that's completely true. I mean, I remember once walking into a house which had all wooden fixtures in the kitchen and the sense of calm was so lovely. I really did relate to that idea of wood as opposed to metal. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because in the book, it does also talk about the use of gold leaf. Yes. I use quite a lot of uh, metallic surfaces in my own work because, again, as the book sort of alludes to, that it mirrors light and kind of can then absorb and kind of create colour that wouldn't be present or brightness that's needed too. Hmm. Maybe, again, with the wood, it's about bringing this connection to nature into your home that's somehow soothing. That's true, actually. Were there any other parts that you wanted to quote from? sort of funny with this because you could kind of just keep reading and reading couldn't you i did read it and then i skim read it and i thought gosh this has a similar effect to what he's talking about you're rereading it and finding all these new things in it like you would find in shadows in contrast to say a big book that illuminates everything i don't know it just made me think of that when i skim read it the second time 
when I've gone back to it the other day just to sort of pull out some particular key points I was really looking for the descriptions particularly just of light and what shadows do Mm -hmm. so it says here that we delight in the mere sight of the delicate glow of fading rays clinging to the surface of the dusky wall there to live out what little life remains of them we never tire of the sight for to us this pale glow and these dim shadows far suppress any ornaments and I thought for me that's quite an important thing to talk about just in the sense that with my work again it kind of deals with the quietness and the loudness and I use very colourful vinyl quite often in these windows that have this kind of effect of stained glass and at the high points of day when you have kind of direct sunlight and it's really bright these colourful shadows will stream everywhere throughout the changing day it kind of becomes muted and I like the idea that people will come back and see the work at different times and you know if it's on for a few months it changes with the seasons dependent on the position of the sun but sometimes all you'll get is a little bit of a glimmer of a shadow or maybe reflection on the floor tiles or something like that and that too for me is really something quite special and I'm not interested in always again sort of the full-on loudness or capturing and grabbing people's attention but something that sort of subliminally also enhances your environment Mm. and really kind of aesthetics for me is something that is quite important and I don't shy away from making things that are beautiful which I think sometimes in art it can be frowned upon slightly to make work that's attractive it's a bit sort of a, a, a funny one when you talk to different people about how they feel about the purpose of art but for me I like this idea that's just like a little bit of magic as well. Mm. I think it's only frowned upon by artists. Not, <laughs> I think everybody else is completely fine. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have any quotes that you wanted to read out? It's a little quiz, isn't um, it? Well, I, I was really interested in the idea of imperfection versus idealism because mm-hmm. I thought that he was talking in a way about the Buddhist idea of imperfection and the way that in kintsugi the the japanese art of repairing broken pottery by mending areas of the break with lacquer dusted or mixed with powdered gold or silver or platinum or whatever and on a philosophical level it sort of treats breakage and repair as part of the history of an object rather than something to disguise the break and that idea which is becoming hugely problematic of disposability I mean it sort of it really does connect to your work I think because your work has a semi-translucency so it's always interrupted It, it it can't achieve a sort of idealistic pure kind of presence Mm. and he also talks of this idea of imperfection in the sense of the things becoming aged I don't know if you caught that but he, he says something really lovely which is of course this sheen of antiquity of which we hear so much is in fact the glow of grime which is such a great term In both Chinese and Japanese, the words denoting this glow describe a polish that comes of being touched over and over again, a sheen produced by the oils that naturally permeate an object over long years of handling, which is to say grime. So, you know, it's such a contrast to Western silver polishing, uh, oh, you know, yeah. just basically, Yeah, isn't exactly. It? Sort of talking about the, the disappointment in how things can be over-polished, which is sort of, you know, funny, isn't it? At the moment, everyone's completely obsessed with cleanliness too. And, mm. um, yeah, I think it's sort of um, this idea of having things to hold on to is something that's really important in connection with art. And 
when people talk about you know having an owning art for example if someone asked how much my work is and then you ask them you know how much they've spent on a night out or a pair of trainers that they might buy or things like that that we had this whole thing with the artist support pledge of buying something for 200 pounds and actually 200 pounds isn't really very much money when you look at the value of certain things but Mm. art is something that you have forever Although with my installations, they do have a temporary nature and they change. There's the experience of looking and holding something in your memory and it being more than an Instagram moment, but something that is also an experience. Maybe like James Terrell, where you go and see his light installations. Mm. They can be quite spiritual experiences too. When I think of your work and I think of the sort of work that you're referring to, say, with James Terrell, this is the sort of work that doesn't have a conclusion or a statement. You know, you're not really sure what it is. He also talks about film and the nuances within Japanese film and photography. And I thought, Alfred Hitchcock and, you know, Vivian Meyer's photography. And I didn't agree with him. He does verge at times on Grumpy Old Man. Absolutely. (laughs) Some of the comments are quite sort of uh, falling into stereotypes, really, aren't they? And it's kind of very much, you know, this is the Eastern way and this is the Western way, rather than actually, like you say, exploring the nuances more. But I guess with what's essentially kind of a 40, 60-page essay, then it's kind of more of a generalisation anyway, isn't it? But for me, really, kind of what I got out of it was this idea of the sensitivity of looking and really kind of not dismissing the unseen moments, but trying to really sort of appreciate and draw a little bit more from them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was opening things up, wasn't he? And I mean, I guess the overarching thing might be aesthetics being driven by the West and him saying, you know, what if the Japanese or the Chinese, what if we invented the pen? What if our paper was the dominant paper? which I personally would love. (laughs) Japanese paper is so gorgeous. So I thought it was great to not necessarily agree with those drastic opposites, but perhaps to start questioning how things could actually be different. I thought a really nice segue with your work was his quote on the beauty of shadows where he says, we find beauty not in the thing itself, but in the patterns of shadows, the light and the darkness that one thing against another creates. And I thought that very much connected with your work, which is mainly coloured geometric installations that appear on windows. They create reflections of colour within the space, which undulates throughout the day and across the work, as you said. So there's the object, which is the coloured decals, and then there's the reflections that they create. So how do you think of them in terms of the parts and the whole? That's a really interesting question. Um, With my work, it can be situated in many different spaces. So sometimes I work in galleries where it's more of a pure exhibition, just focusing on an installation. But I also do quite a lot of work in public spaces too. So I've just completed a commission for Nightingale Arts, which is in a mental health NHS hospital. 
And that's quite interesting because it's in these corridor spaces. And the idea was really that they're very clinical, off-white painted corridors. So we really wanted to create something which would enhance and change the environment. And it's sort of funny because my work always fits within the space that it's situated. But what's exciting about the interaction with daylight is that it also transforms it. And when we were installing the work, you start to notice how little areas will glow at certain points of day. And we were joking about a plug on one of the walls and the sunlight in the sort of late afternoon hit the vinyl and cast these beautiful coloured shadows onto the plug. Mm-hmm. And we're like, oh, it's the most beautiful plug in the hospital. <laughs> When I document the work, there's always this thing of, you know, should I Photoshop certain things out? You know, kind of what do you really want to show when you're zoning in on that space? And I think that it's um, important to recognise the spaces and really kind of allow it to highlight what's going on there. But also you almost stop seeing, again, the plug socket because you're looking at the patterns of the shadows Mm. instead. Yeah, I mean, that's funny that you bring up the hospital being such a clinical space because Tanizaki does say, you know, why have we made all these hospitals white? And it's all so sharp and does make me think of David Batchelor who, who writes about the hostility of white in Western aesthetic, which is not necessary. You know, white can be a very beautiful aesthetic. And I suppose when you think of those Japanese paper walls that Tanizaki reflects on, it's a very different white and it's interesting that it's a transitional space because the work is so transitional so did Nightingale Arts choose that for you or yeah they they chose it for me I mean what started to happen is people know that I do window installations so people kind of come to me when they go we've got these windows what do you think (laughs) they'd seen my work they had this space they were looking for an element to come and change it and um, it's funny when I was installing the work because it's a you know very public space one of the staff members said to me oh I've actually changed my daily route now to incorporate this corridor (laughs) yeah and the staff were all kind of coming and watching the work develop. It was really nice just to have conversations and people were telling me which colour palettes they preferred and, you know, certain people had quite strong opinions about which colours look better and I hope that, you know, as they continue to come back and forth, that'll be something that they still appreciate. And I had a piece I made for the ICs gallery in Arles and for Olivier and David's home, I left a window installation, just a small couple of triangles in one of the stairwells and they've had it up for a couple of years now and every now and again I'll get a photograph of Olivier saying oh look the the sun's here and it's just really funny yeah how it's it's kind of constantly changing and moving and that you know this simple gesture gives them a little bit of pleasure every now and again Mm. and so how long does it last on a window it really depends I mean um, I've had pieces that have been up for a few years now Mm. and just depends on how well it's looked after my kind of ultimate goal is I'd like to make some actual stained glass pieces. Opportunity and budget allowing, really, mm. for that sort of thing. Wow. Have you ever done stained glass? I've done a little bit. I did mm. um, a couple of courses, but the only thing with those is that you have a line, either of the leading or the copper foil. And I found that that sort of interrupted and took away from some of the power of the shadows, actually. But in September 2019, I went to Derek's Glass Studios in Germany. Mm. So we made some pieces where we etched into the glass and also spray painted different chemicals onto it to then create shapes, which was really amazing. Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah, Yeah. and it was really um, exciting just to learn a bit more about different techniques that might be open to me. So 
that was really nice because then it really recreated the effects that I've been doing with the vinyl of just having pure colour layered on top of each other. Um, so I think there's definitely room in the future to see what that could be. I did a course, oh gosh, it was so long ago in stained glass. It's actually a lot harder than it oh, looks. Oh yeah, which absolutely. Which is such a shame. <laughs> it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because as artists you get so used to the particular techniques, but cutting a straight line in glass is so much harder mm. because it's quite brittle and the level of accuracy is quite difficult to maintain. I want to make something really big, so I'd really like to work with people who do it day in, day out and do something very ambitious with that. So your materials now, are they sort of commercially available? Yeah, Yeah, and I I quite like that because even, you know, when I'm doing wall drawings and Mm. things like that, I often use paint that you just buy from um, homeware shops. I'm working in often shop windows using the same materials that people who put advertising up in Mm. windows use too. And I think it's important to show how art can fit within everyday life as well. And I want, you know, my work to be something attainable that other people can have a go at doing too. And you were talking before about palettes, about colour palettes in the hospital and people having different preferences. So where do you come from with your colour palettes? I like to use colours within similar tonal palettes to kind of create some movement between the Mm colours. Sometimes I play with opposites and contrasting colours, but blue always seems to appear in my work in one way or another. And when I did this particular commission for the hospital, I used a series of three different blues. And in the first floor windows where they didn't have any direct daylight, I put silver vinyl in as well because I wanted to use the silver to lift the colours that were laid on top of it, but also to kind of bounce off the walls and the window frames and all of those things just to kind of bring um, another dimension to the work. Mm. The corridor is separated by a double door so one door when you open it you suddenly walk into this kind of pink glow and then the other one's much brighter and it was quite fun just to even just walking through those doors then suddenly change people's moods which was even more effective than I'd imagined when I was designing it on my computer but I do like to use strong and uplifting colours because without the work necessarily being sort of overpowering, I still want it to have a boldness and a you know, sense of announcing that it's there too. And did you start on paper and then move towards these semi-translucent window pieces or...? Originally, I actually worked a lot with watercolour, and um, when I was doing my degree, I started making my own paints. I was buying pigment and mixing and making watercolours, which then moved into wall drawings, partly because I'm really interested in Sol Lewitt, and um, he was known for his wall drawings, so I wanted to have a go at doing it myself, and... During that time, when I was doing my MA, I went to the National Gallery where Bridget Riley had the amazing exhibition where there was a series of wall drawings there. And that really inspired me to keep going down that field. And I really liked through mixing the pigments that you could create so much subtlety with the colours. With the vinyl, it's a bit more complex because I buy it by the roll and I cut it to size. And that, you have a limit to the colour range. But that's part of the reason why I layer up the colours, because then you can stretch it as much as possible, particularly using complementary colours, that they really layer up and create these other colours that wouldn't exist without that interaction. Yeah, definitely. It's just interesting to see on Instagram, not so long ago, you featured a throwback piece. Yeah. (laughs) That you'd done, was it on your foundation, where you created a machine and an umbrella which created a drawing or something like that that's right yeah I did my foundation at Leeds College of Art and um, which now Leeds Arts University but 
it was a really playful year. It's probably my favourite year of studying, actually. I think it was really liberating to do the foundation. Mm. And the course was modelled on the Bauhaus. So there's this idea of everyone experimenting and trying all sorts of different things. And one of the tasks they set us was that we had to create a drawing machine. Me and my friends were like, we don't know what to do. So we just put up a bit of string and found an umbrella and twisted it and cut these holes and put pots in that then dripped. But it's sort of funny because a lot of my work, I do use tools. And again, the umbrella kind of worked almost like at this giant compass or something like that. But it was just really fun and playful at the same time. Yeah, but the fact is it was messy. Yeah. You know, and your work is not messy. I know. I was really surprised. Well, it's funny because at that stage, I'd also started making a lot of drawings with compasses. And I have been doing a little bit watercolours where I use compasses again and mm. I like the contrast of the compass being this thing that draws this perfect circle but then watercolour bleeds into the paper it soaks and it changes depending on how the colours cross over each other so that's my kind of more grown-up way of being messy. And do you make your own watercolour from pigment or? I do a mixture but I prefer to make it myself because you get to create the exact colour that you want. Yeah I, th- I think it holds the pigment a bit better. Uh, there's a lovely quote in the book which says Westerners attempt to expose every speck of grime and eradicate it while we Orientals carefully preserve and even idealise it. It made me think about the semi-translucency of your work and the lack of clarity of it, not just because it's an object which creates a reflection and therefore a lack of clarity with, you know, well, which one is the work and I assume the work is the whole thing but also that it's interrupted by people. I mean, there was the lovely changing light that I saw when I first saw your work at Sid Motion Gallery, but I remember when it was at, I think it was at the Koppel Project in Hoban. That's right, Do you say yeah. Hoban or Holborn? Uh, well, the, the tube announce always says Hoban, but I always oh. thought Holborn. <laughs> right, okay. I never know. Yeah. Anyway, um, at the Koppel Project where I tried to take these perfect photographs of it and it wasn't working because somebody would walk past or a bus would drive past and, you know, then you end up thinking, okay, I've got to go with what the work is doing, not try and mould the work into some sort of perfection. So where do you sit with something that you can't really control how it's seen in a way? I mean, it's so perfectly geometric. It's almost asserting itself as something very controlled and very perfect. But yet, in in reality, it doesn't play out that way, does it? Absolutely. And it's funny because, you know, with architecture, you kind of assume it's perfect. Then when you start installing artwork on the walls and the windows, suddenly all these inconsistencies appear. And quite often when I'm doing pieces on windows, when you measure them up, they all look the same size, but then they're not. So um, with my work, I'm often using these kind of proportions and relationships between the shapes to kind of give this sense of seamlessness. Although perhaps some of the windows are a bit wider or narrower than other ones. So there's always an element of problem solving which is something that I really enjoy in the work of trying to think how do I create this sense of seamlessness when actually things aren't quite perfect and again it's quite interesting sort of harking back a little bit to what you're saying about you know kind of this grime and quality of surfaces that when you paint onto a wall suddenly you highlight the textures of it with windows because you look through them then you kind of have to be aware of what's happening at both sides at the same time and you know often the window might be on dirty on the other side and then you get really stressed out because you're like this window isn't perfect and now it makes my work look imperfect too but I've had to sort of learn to not be so worried and let go of some of these things at the same time. 
but it is um, a challenge and kind of quite fun again to document it too, particularly because windows are reflective surfaces so when you photograph the window you have to try and do it in a way that you're not in it unless you want to be in the photograph and more so when I started using mirrored reflective vinyl too that suddenly it becomes a whole other challenge and you know if a bus goes past then suddenly the work turns red and things like that so it's part of it. Speaking of architecture you recently did a piece I think it was part of a residency which had a, a very short and therefore I missed it and it was I was very disappointed uh, with Poppy Watmore and Ben McDonald. What was that called again? So this was um, for passengers. passengers. Yeah, That's yeah, right. Yeah. So um, Julie Hill, who organises passengers with her, um, Kevin Gold of the Gold Architecture, they have a space in the Brunswick Centre. Yeah. And um, they invited a couple of artists, myself, Poppy and Ben, to all have month-long residencies at the start of the year. So I was really lucky that during the lockdown I had this new office space that I could access for a month and spend some time exploring the Brunswick and really kind of trying to think about the building as a container of light and also how it's used by its inhabitants. And yeah, then, all the photographs that you took of all these beautiful, really dramatic shadows and light. Yeah, it's because it's made from concrete, it's very dramatic and quite stark and... Because I'm known mainly as you know someone who works with colour, it was quite interesting to do something in a space that was grey. Mm. And rather than trying to ignore that, I really wanted to just explore the more minimalist elements of it, of just looking at light and its ability to colour and change a shape. And the exhibition that we did recently, The Unfolding Terrace, that was exploring the conclusions that all three of us had made during the projects. And for me, what I ended up doing was actually showing some photographs that I'd taken during the residency, which I printed onto vinyl and then placed around the building to then connect to the points where they'd originally been situated. But what was quite fun about it was that I'd I had these laser cut triangles, so I took photographs of them and then they captured the building, which had this very kind of painterly quality to it, which when I then represented it in space, had this sort of slight sense of optical illusion. Did that lead on to the work with Charlie Peters? Because you did some collaborative pieces and they were all grey. Yeah, so with those, during the residency, I made some screen prints and then went to the print studio, turned them into these uh, sort of half-tone photographic stencils. And Charlie came to visit me during the residency, so we sort of explored the building and talked about something that we could do together with that. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm so glad you did. <laughs> yeah, so she actually she took the, the prints away and then... We talked about kind of this idea of colours and lighting and introducing some neon and really popping against the grey. So we're actually working on a collaboration at the moment, which will happen later in the year. So things are in motion at the moment. Well, I very much look forward to that. The other piece that I wanted to highlight as well, and I'm sorry that people can't see this, but there's lots of documentation on your Instagram, is Kaleidoscope Prisms, which was at Jubilee Place in Canary Wharf as part of the Summer Lights Festival. So it was a stunning rainbow of arrows over the windows and it coincided with June Pride Month. 
for that one, it's actually still up for a little bit longer because although the Summer Lights Festival has now ended, my piece is going to be up on Jubilee Place until mid-October. Yeah, there's still a chance to catch it. And the idea, again, with this space is it's very unusual architectural structure and it's these two kind of glass pyramids that then extend into the opening entrance to the shopping centre. When I was working with them, the Canary Wharf group, to sort of decide what to do with the space, we wanted to choose something that really kind of highlighted and dealt with the architecture at the same time. So I treated the windows panels as a grid and actually had these triangles that moved across and they ended up being arrows because I just kind of felt like there was so much direction within it that I liked the idea that they were kind of all pointing and leading you into the centre of the space. I mean, what I really, really love about that piece is that in June, there was a lot of rainbow washing by brands, which I just find so offensive. And the idea that you were creating essentially a rainbow of colours in a place that I associate with really sort of hetero macho, I thought was just great because that's where the subtlety of aesthetics or decoration or whatever you might categorize it as become really political it's a very homogenous sort of space isn't it yeah and it can feel quite stark there as well as you say with the surroundings being so gray I mean for me it's a really nice space to work with because it's in the center of the park and you know it's been really fun to photograph it because when I've been walking around the trees sort of reflected on the glass as well and um, at certain angles other, all the skyscrapers appear on the piece too when you're actually down in the shopping centre when the, the light hits it all these shadows are cast on the floor of the shopping centre there's all these metallic surfaces that mirror it too so it's always a little bit around you and the idea of it when you're looking through the kaleidoscope you're looking through a surface and the light's pouring in but the shapes are always moving thing too so I tried to make it feel less static I wanted it to reference the pride flag but it was not trying to be this empty gesture but something that was celebratory and that sort of recognized and referenced it without just being you know stamping a flag on and leaving it at that fantastic position for the work I thought that was great and the interaction of the trees etc I am sitting here in your studio and I am facing the window which has your work against it and I have been noticing I've been concentrating as well but I have been noticing the beautiful change of light in the work as the wind moves the trees yeah absolutely and I've got little bits of vinyl samples in the window and sometimes it's actually quite hard to work in here because there's so much glass and vinyl that it starts (laughs) throwing colours but then when you're having a tea break it's really nice just to watch the the moving leaves and the shadows sort of dancing on the surfaces of my table yeah, too yeah. so chose a, a good point in time to pop in and say hi <laughs> we need to move on a bit but just the last point about your work i'm quite interested in the origins of you know how you came to this so tanazaki is talking about a particular culture that he's from and while we let's say as westerners i'll just bulk us all together might appreciate the aesthetic outcome like say minimalism for instance they actually come from a philosophical grounding and I was just wondering can you locate a real driver for your work yeah it's a funny one I've been thinking about this quite a bit recently in terms of influences and one thing that has kind of come up again and again is that quite a lot of people in my family are actually mathematicians oh I see wow and I think for me, there's always this need to kind of create some form of balance. And with the colours, you know, 
it's not as though I see them as numbers, but there's something about the colours where there's a, a balance of the weight of, you know, how much red does this have in? And, you know, if you put it with the orange, how does that then figure together in relationship to each other? But also that it's very important to create rhythms. And originally when I started doing wall drawings, I'd set up a numbering system and then allow that to kind of come into play. And again, I think with um, shapes, there's, you know, the mathematical element, but also this sense that you always know what a shape looks like. So the circle has a rule. And again, you know, the triangle has to have three sides. So then if you start to skew or um, change it in some way through the art or even with the window frames, often I'll have a triangle, but it might be cut into three or four different pieces. And so even though each element of the vinyl shape isn't a full triangle, the pieces together become something that you know. And really that sort of sense of rhythm and balance is really important to create the kind of harmony through the colours and the shapes. So I think maybe that I, in a way, I'm kind of trying to create this order through my art, but there's also something that's maybe beautiful and relaxing and contemplative too. That's interesting because you're talking about triangles and in mathematics, triangles are a symbol for change. And it's almost in the way you're talking about your work in terms of, you know, colour and shape and mathematics and uh, rhythm. It's something musical as much as it is something logical. And we know that mathematics and uh, music have quite a strong connection as well in terms of mathematically minded. So somehow it all makes sense, you know, you're wrapped up quite beautifully there. I'd like to move on to your influences and you gave me a lovely list, which I will put on my notes, Uh, but I wanted to hone in on one artist who I think is a great master, who is Bridget Riley, and another artist whose work I'm not very familiar with at all. So perhaps you can tell us a bit about Anne Veronica Janssens, how do I say her? I think Janssens yeah. is correct. Um, well, she's actually um, born in the UK, but she's now based in Belgium. And right. I discovered her work a few years ago at the White Cube Gallery in the Bermondsey space. They had a room sort of dedicated to her work. And more recently, she did a big show at South London Gallery. And what I really like about her work is she has kind of quite a few common interests to my own work in terms of the qualities of material and light. Yeah. Do you want to just explain quite briefly perhaps one piece that she's done? Yeah. Um. So for the South London Gallery show, she had some really interesting pieces where she was using bodies of liquid. So she created these cubes and then she was working with water and oil and allowing different lights to sort of filter through the pieces and what's sort of really interesting about her is that the work you know is very minimalistic gestures in the sense that she might only use three materials to create it but actually the way that you then kind of look and try to work out how it's been formed is quite fascinating and a little bit again with the book that we've just been talking about it's about the kind of like the properties of things and how you understand them and creating a feeling with that too. I mean, the show at South London Gallery, one of the kind of, you know, the Instagram friendly eye catching pieces is that she throws these pieces of glitter on the floor and they create these kind of sparkling trails. But at the same time, it's very hard to just throw something down and have it look right. And this balance between knowing what something does, again, like the qualities of glitter and how it reflects light and has that sense of magic in it, which we kind of keep going back to, too. It reminded me of... Felix Gonzalez-Torres, actually, and his piles of sweeties with the glitter. 
and the light bulbs as well. So that that's a connection I never would have thought of until yeah. you started speaking, actually. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's, these things are never quite made in isolation. Yeah, are of they? course. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, his work is interesting as well, isn't it, with this thing of, you know, being able to take away work with you too. And again, it's sort of rethinking the art object, isn't it, and using things that can be everyday materials, but just putting them in a completely different context mm. and questioning what is art and you know provoking conversations which maybe is something that occurs a little bit in my own work of not necessarily working in traditional art spaces but having something that still is absolutely understandable as an artwork Mm. well there's a heritage in your work that is shared with artists like you know Sol Witt, who you mentioned before but also Bridget Riley sort of classical colour field artist and she is still working still experimenting and still confounding us (laughs) with what's possible with shape and colour so what do you see in her work that you connect with well, it's interesting because when I first sort of started looking at her work, I found it a little bit too logical in some ways. But then really when I started thinking about all the ways that she experiments with approaching the canvas and particularly with her wall installations, that there's a lot of movement and just to use black and white or just black on a white surface, but then have so much that happens within that plane is really fascinating to me. And particularly I love her curved wave pieces where they're kind of waves but then there's something that's missing and she um, makes her own rulers and drawing tools too so there's this kind of real sense of orderliness and a logic that's definably hers does she really yeah there's um i've seen sort of images of her studio and she has you know Mm. wooden drawing tools that she has you know made so that she can then create the curves in her paintings and I did a little project where I started making my own rulers and I've never quite sort of followed through with it but I really want to have these tools at some point that are specific to particular pieces of work so I was trying to work out ways when I was making particularly wall drawings where I was having to sort of mask and draw everything out on walls of having like little tools that I could just put up and draw around instead and then fold up and put in my suitcase (laughs) (laughs) yeah what what was her big show that she had recently she had one at the Hayward gallery yeah that was fantastic. I mean, one thing for me, it's her planning drawings where she's got all her little hand-drawn calculations on the sides of her drawings. Absolutely. No, that's um, that was one of my favourite areas of that Hayward exhibition as well, all the works on paper. And it's a real art to doing something that's quite complicated but also looks very simple at the same time. Mm. And I quite often get that when I do my installations that often, like I was saying about how the triangles might be pieced together from several different elements where there might be you no know, parallelograms or, you know, even just strips of colour and things like that. It is nice to know all the thought that goes into that. And with Bridget Riley, you know, she keeps on coming out with new and interesting things because she's got so much experience and ideas and knowledge yeah that's true and coming back to your work where can we see you coming up I mean you've done so much work you always seem to be somewhere so where are you besides Instagram okay (laughs) well I've got an exhibition at JGM Gallery at the moment close to home which is co-curated with Linda Hemmersbach and Hannah Luxton who's also been an art fiction guest So that's until the 25th of September. And the piece, Kaleidoscopic Prisons in Canary Wharf, that's until early October. Mm-hmm. But the main thing that I'm working on at the moment is I'm going to be doing a solo exhibition at the Art Station in Saxmundham, okay. which will be opening towards the end of October 
early November and it's going to be quite a big project where I'll be creating site-specific work within the building but also working with students at the local university and some schools as well. It's more about looking at the practical skills of art making so it's going to be really fun to work on these big windows in the art station. You're also one of the people leading recreational grounds with Anna Littredoux and Tim Ralston. That's right. How do you find time to do all this? Oh, well, I mean, um, all of these things, you just have to be very organised, don't you? And um, recreational grounds is something that we do as much as anything for fun, really. It was really important to me as an artist not to just make my own work, but also to support and create opportunities for other artists. And recreational grounds have been really helpful just in thinking about working in new spaces and kind of the the kind of conversations and navigation that you have in creating site responsive work in traditionally non-gallery spaces as well so that project um at the factory is curated by Thorpe Stavry and it's going to be working with about 10 different artists curator groups and it's going to coincide with freeze week so we kind of really want to do something that's a bit of the antithesis of the commercial art fair yeah, I know a few artists who are going to be in that. What's that called? So it's just the factory. Okay. Yeah, um, but it's in association with Project, who are this artist studio group. That's the piece I'll be collaborating with Charlie Peters on. So I'm going to see what happens next, really. Oh, fantastic. So is there anything big on for next year? Yeah, I'm going to have a solo exhibition at the Foundry Gallery, oh, okay. which Brilliant. is another gallery that's actually in an architecture office. It's going to be a little bit of sort of reflecting on the different elements of my work in terms of bringing together the installations and the works on paper and prints and also looking at some of the working drawings and the process of making so that will be around May time in 2022. And when you find yourself doing nothing and you pick up a book what other books are you reading at the moment? Well actually speaking of books you're almost going to choose a different book for this podcast. That's right. That? Yeah so it was a Murakami book oh, that I was right. going to read. In some ways it kind of falls quite nicely in relation to this book as well but it's um The Hard Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World. Mm-hmm. I do read quite a bit and I tend to read for pleasure. I've got a group of friends we've got this sort of a uh, book club that's based vaguely around people who all used to work together at a particular gallery and we've been reading quite a lot of queer fiction actually recently which has been really interesting and funnily enough one of the books we read was Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts Brilliant. it was uh, yeah. well, it wasn't recommended by me so it was uh, really nice to read the book and then listen to the podcast that you'd done on that too but yeah with Jane yeah, yeah and also anything that's to do with glass or interesting descriptions of light I'm always folding down the page and thinking that could be a future exhibition oh, title wow. yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh I can imagine well, on that note, I want to say thank you very much, Fiona Grady, for being on Art Fictions. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great to talk to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, listeners, and also thanks to today's guest artist, Fiona Grady. The music for this abridged podcast was written and performed by Griffin Knight, while award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created the Art Fictions logo. If you'd like to support the series, please subscribe and rate, and you're welcome to get in touch with me directly via my Art Fictions 2020 Instagram. Happy reading and art viewing. Till next time funny because you often when you're talking about your work it's kind of always in terms of practicality so it's nice to sort of think around the wider picture of it as well. Yeah the thing is I always have 10,000 questions about the practical you know making of the work but it's great for artists to listen to but probably only artists.
artists. Yeah, I think also a lot of artists are quite shy, so it's sort of helpful to have these things, like you say, keeping them quite light and conversational, and particularly when you're in someone's studio space, you don't want them to feel that they're on a photo shoot, do you? No, that's a good way to think of it, actually. And I think, yeah, people climb up, and the whole idea is to try and, you know, not just talk about the ideas behind the work, but try and get to things that will not necessarily be what you would put in your artist's statement or what you would answer in an interview or whatever. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not, I don't want to know about your childhood. You can tell me if you like, <laughs> but yeah. I don't mean it's sort of psychologically deep, but just trying to make connections that, that you naturally